Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is one person who will never complain about the heatwave we are having in Britain at the moment, the permanently icy metaller, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Actually, as I came in, you were sitting outside the studio because it was too cold. Yeah, well, it's all centrally controlled here, so... And I you're wearing a denim jacket. I am. Like a, a metal fan would do. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, and next week I will be bringing a blanket. It's, not, it's just, it's not normal. <laughs> uh, it's not normal, no, it's very cold. <laughs> we shall never agree on this. Now, listen, stop what you're doing and make sure you're subscribing to two things, this podcast and the TLS. You can get a special deal if you Google subscriptions. This week... As part of our American special, we'll be talking about the rise of the alt-right and the much-debated spectre of the left-behind classes in the US and our own country. Joan Williams is on the line from the States, and this year marks 50 years since the establishment of the Booker Prize. We have an eight-page special in the paper with contributions from a whole host of winners, including Ian McEwen, V.S. Naipaul and Anne Enright. We'll be debating the point of literary prizes, our favourite winners our least favourite winners, and more with fiction editor Toby Lishtig. Now, it's often tempting to harumph about literary prizes and their inflated and self-inflating value. Literature is, after all, not a competition. It's not susceptible to correct answers or final scores. But for 50 years, the Booker Prize has attempted to establish the year's greatest novel and reward the novelist for writing it. We might cavil with their choices, of course, but we might also profitably recognise that the initial aim back in 1968 was this, to emulate the pre-Goncourt, which unfailingly stimulated the reading of and conversation about new fiction. We can all agree that such an outcome is devoutly to be wished for. That first year, by the way, the judging was pretty fierce. Gabby Wood, the literary director of the Bookers, told us some of the imperious put-downs of one of the first judges, Rebecca West, which might stimulate more than just conversation. This is unbelievable. It is to be noted, she said, that all the novels about Ireland yet submitted cause a feeling of regret that people are not killing themselves all over Ireland and not just in Ulster. 
Deary me. Judges, even when not contemplating the sanctioning of terrorism, are generally performing a thankless task. They must commit to reading more than 150 novels, which might amount to around 15 million words, not all of which will be as aptly chosen as one might desire. And then their collective wisdom is liable to be scorned by the Chatterati, even as their largesse is celebrated by the winning author and publisher. The TLS has, it must be said, some track record in scorning collective wisdom. Ros Deneen, our features editor, searched the archive to a Assess this paper's initial judgments on Booker winning books, which veer from the frosty. With a bit more control, he is destined to produce a very good book indeed. To the stirred, his previous novels seem in retrospect to be mere ranging shots or flanking attacks. This is the assault on the stronghold. Is one test of a book that it can produce a great critical response, or is that irrelevant as some brilliant things cannot survive dissection? To discuss that and more, Toby Lishtig, the TLS's chief junketeer. Hello. He's here. Hello, Toby. Hi. Hi. How are you feeling? Are you warm enough? It's quite cold in here, oh, but, I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm quite happy to be cold for a change. Because it's, yeah, it's, it's too hot, isn't it? No, not too hot. I, I'm, I'm enjoying this. Oh, you're, you're, I'm not you're, a grumbler. I'm not you're a like grumb- a lizard. I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> like Thea. Like, yeah. In many ways. Yes. <laughs> Moving on from the weather, literary prizes, <laughs> in particular the Booker, do we think they are a good thing? In a word, yes. And let's face it, we'd be sad without them. Imagine if we abolished the Booker and all prizes. Well, well, would know, it make have... any difference to anybody other well, than publishers looking for cash? Well, I think the reading public quite likes it. You know, we, we all like a competition. As long as we take it and them with a pinch of salt, not the reading public, the prizes. And my general line on the Booker is... I don't want it to become too much for hegemony. So the way I think about literary prizes is actually let's have as many of them as possible to, to stop any one prize holding too much sway. Oh, it's the, the opposite of the... It's the opposite line that JC takes in MB, which is yeah. that, you know, there's too much yeah. prize culture, all must have prizes. I would prefer rather than there to be sort of one or two... Because you know, it, it, it's reasonably arbitrary, isn't it? Uh, well, what Gabby wins? Will, Gabby Wood does make that point in her piece, doesn't she? She specifically says it's not absolute. It's never intended no. to be absolute. No, it's, it's the just, beginning it, of a conversation. Yeah, exactly, and it's for or five judges or whatever it is and in, in any one year they're all going to have different tastes and ideas and the, the, one of the problems with the Booker and, and we are all guilty of this at the TLS uh, along with many other media outlets we set it up too much we, we pay too much attention do. probably yes and at the expense of other prizes so you know uh, there's a Goldsmiths Prize I mean we, we sponsor that wonderful Republic of Consciousness Prize which is for small presses I'm not saying in, in terms of guilt we, we do it because it's enjoyable and it's sort of it, it in itself is kind of presented is this this thing that we should all pay attention to? But it's a bit like the Nobel Prize. Mm. We, you know, I think we think we all get a bit too excited about the Nobel Prize I, too. The Nobel Prize, I find, leaving aside this, the the sexual shenanigans that are now surrounding yes. its committee, is that it seems so arbitrary mm. in that. You don't really know the criteria. I know there's no Booker criteria, but the Booker Prize is at least there's a bunch of novels published in a year. Absolutely, and there are uh, 160 of them or whatever they yeah, are. Yeah, they get they submitted get by publishers, they can be called in. Those 160 go to a, a long list, then a short list, and then a, a winner. That process is relatively clear, Absolutely. and it's kind of the best novel of the year. Yeah, and it's almost with the, with the Nobel, it's almost the opacity of the Nobel that has, that has allowed it to become this grand, mysterious thing. Whereas, at least, you're right with the Booker, there is a, there is a kind of process that we can see. But... Yeah, the, the, the basic point is I, I like it and I think it's I think it's useful and interesting, but I, I'm I'm pro there being many prizes. Julian Barnes said this in 1987. See if you agree with this. The Booker, after 19 years, is beginning to drive people mad. It drives publishers mad with hope, booksellers mad with greed, judges mad with power, winners mad with pride, and losers, the unsuccessful short listers plus every other novelist in the country, mad with envy and disappointment. 
Yes. And that's, <laughs> as, that's, as even, that's, that's even truer now than it was when Julian Barnes said it. And, you know, let, let's not bang on about the so-called Christ of literary fiction or whatever, but the, read the book are having a little bit too much power. A novel that may have sold in the thousands or even possibly just the hundreds, if it wins the Booker, then suddenly you're talking tens of thousands. But that's not necessarily that... true anymore, is it? Because... It's less true, I think. Yeah, it's that's le- less true than it was. It's uh, well, Lincoln I... the Bardo's done nothing, exactly. apparently. Which won last year, jo- uh, the George Saunders one. Uh, yeah, OK, OK. A point to be made then is shortlisting can make a very big difference, yeah. actually. Yeah. So, so, for example, the John McGregor book, which may have sold sort of all right, it got in, in fact, it wasn't even shortlisted, it was longlisted last year, Reservoir 13, and that got in the tens of thousands. And there's an argument to be made that had it not got that attention initially, it might not have sold quite so well. That's but, interesting. But a, a difference from, you know, from, from Julian Bond's, or well, the time when Julian Bond said that, of course, is there are so many different ways of promoting and being excited about books, social media, obviously. And yet this is, is not a golden era of serious books being read. I mean, there is this debate about literary fiction, which Booker must play into, which is whatever else we might think of it, these books, generally speaking, literary fiction novels, serious fiction, is not being read as it would have been in 1987 when Julian Barnes was was writing this, is it? I mean, the, the literary fiction isn't selling. No, not to the same extent. Although there's, you know, the, 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 there's a slightly depressing argument to be made that it's actually quite quite a golden era of literary fiction being produced. So, right, well, I, I think so. I think I think if you look at the quality of, sort of fiction out there at the moment, I think there's some really really wonderful stuff going on. In fact, it's, it's interesting you brought up the the, the the point about Irish writing. I mean, there's a a, a well talked about Irish literary renaissance. Yeah. Really fantastic Which writing. In our new Elizabethan. It did exactly. But someone we just, complained about our new Elizabethan. I can't remember who it was. It was a literary figure who wrote a letter to us and then was quoted in the Times. Wendy I can't Cope. Wendy Cope, that's it. And she said, oh, it's really unfair because by choosing some, you're neglecting others, which is kind of a Julian Barnes argument. But oh. that feels like well, you'd I mean, never make any discrimination about anything. Uh, if you, I mean, yeah, exactly. If you well, then, yeah, exactly. Let's not review books or even, you know, yeah. <laughs> or even recommend things to our friends. Let's just say read everything. But, yeah, I mean, again, as a, as a critic or someone who works in the literary establishment, what I want is as many different views and people talking about things and, you know, dissenting views from my own. But Julian Barnes's point, maybe Wendy Cope's point would be, if you want wide-ranging views, don't create a list ultimately that goes to five books. Often there's kind of... Do you not find in the short list you get the familiar well, it's, few names? It's, yeah, it's certainly been interesting looking back over the past 50 years and you see the same names coming up again and again. Belle Bainbridge, Penelope Fitzgerald, Thomas Keneally... Yes, absolutely. And then you've got the phenomenon of, of the, the Lifetime Achievement Award where the person who's been nominated several times then wins, finally wins it for the book, which well, is not their was, best book. That was sort of Beryl Bainbridge as well in that she never won it. Shortlisted five times, more times than anyone else, and she never won it. And then in 2011, I think, posthumously, she was given a booker, which was quite strange. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing about it. We can have these arguments. I mean, the famous one is Amsterdam by Ian McEwan, mm. which I think Ian McEwan wouldn't even argue is one that's, of his beta books. It's very not. slight, very short, but it came after Enduring Love, which people possibly Probably felt should have won, should have won it, it. Mm. and therefore it, the that argument happens a lot. Was, the making up, doesn't it? Do you think it does? I think it does. Yeah, that, well, that's ha- what happened with Penelope Fitzgerald. Just to say, definitely ha- that again. Ha- happened with Howard Jacobson when he won it for the Finger Question. Happened with Julian Barnes probably when he won it for the Sense of an Ending. Probably not his best book. How do you think the TLS has treated Booker? winners as fiction editor are you worried about it toby that we've not covered a book or we've covered it too scant and then it pops up in a shortlist as that happens i mean there there are there are lots of different prizes there 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 are some things that we fail to cover that might come up in one list or another generally with books that get that win the book we, we tend to have covered them I think uh, we, I fairly think 48, extensively I think 48 out of the 50 absolutely and, and you know there isn't too much 
when when the long list and the short list come out, there isn't too much scrabbling around and thinking, oh, oh God, why, why haven't we covered this one or that? There was that two years ago, there was that rather strange long list. It was the year Paul Beatty one, yeah. sellout. And I remember there were two or three books. There was a, The North Water by Ian Maguire um, was one of them, and another one that, that, that fell under everybody's radar. But then that just gave you an excuse to revisit it and to get a piece in. And again, it's There's a way a of getting a conversation going. In terms of how we've covered things over the years, I, it, you know, it doesn't bother me at all that we've said stridently critical things about things that have won. I mean, the, the last one that won that we really gave a panning was Richard Flanagan's The Narrow Road to the Deep North, and that was Craig Rain, who is, uh, you know, a, a seasoned kicker of novels. Yeah. He gave it a bit of a trouble. And I remember when I read the piece, I thought, oh, God, this book's going to do well. <laughs> <laughs> you could just tell. He wrote, uh, I've, I've written down a quote, he said, The Narrow Road to the Deep North confuses poetry, the higher register, with a trope of repetition, and it is fatal. <laughs> uh, the other thing we've done this week, uh, we've got booker winners to list their choices of underrated and overrated novels. Roddy Doyle has offered this one, not novel. The lads who wrote the Bible deserve a slap. Brilliant. It's hard to disagree with that. But we're going to play overrated, underrated, the three of us, for Booker winners over the last 50 years. Underrated first, because that's nicer. Toby, an underrated Booker winner. Well, I'm going to go for Life of Pi, which people oh. tend to dismiss. So there you go. Yeah. As a bit kind of fey and whimsical and Popul- a bit sort populist. of bit populist. And I read it years ago when I was, I don't know, maybe a late teenager in my early 20s and loved it. And then I revisited it not very long ago when the film came out and I wrote a piece on the, on the, on the, on the film for the TLS and I reread the book. And I was a bit sceptical and a bit worried about it. And actually I thought it really held up very well. It's just a really... Did he never Beautiful write anything fable. else? No, he, he did. did. He's a few written. Years ago, there was yeah, he, he's written a couple of things. We um, were not very complimentary about his last novel in the paper. I can't remember what it's called now, unfortunately. Is that the one that Ros, Rosalind Deneen, in fact, reviewed? I, I, think. I think that was the one before that. One before that. But well, no, yes, he's, so there have he's, been others. <laughs> he certainly hasn't done much of note since then. Uh, which is the DBC Pierre's another good example of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. His second book, which I reviewed somewhere else, Ludmilla's Broken English, yeah. was genuinely. Jaw-droppingly yeah, bad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what was, the, what was the book he won, won it for? Because it came out of nowhere, the one he won it for. He won it for... Um, Vernon Godlittle, Vernon Godlittle which is the year yeah. after Life of Pi, yeah. where, when it felt like the book was going in quite yeah. a strange direction. And then the, the year after that, Line of Beauty won, which is a much more classical... Yeah. Mm. And I'm not saying Life of Pi, I think, is the most wonderful book ever. I, just, it, it's, I think it is generally dismissed, and I, I actually think it's, it's very pretty good. good. Thea, underrated? Well, I don't know if it's underrated, but I certainly don't remember many people talking about it in recent times anyway, as Pat Barker. Um, the Ghost Road. Oh, really? Which I think so. She was given that one in 1995. So I, I mean, I suspect she was being given the Booker for that novel. Although it's really nodding to the whole trilogy. Yeah, that was right. the, the final instalment there. I reread that relatively recently, and again, yeah, found that it really stood up to, to time. It didn't. It hadn't really aged for me. And it's a period novels, that I'm so fascinated by. Uh, I'm going for The White Tiger by Aravind Adiga, who I've read a couple of stuff that he does. I think he's he writes beautifully about India and he has a sense of place and he has a set eye for a detail. And again, he we, he's well-reviewed still. But Absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting that he's not very much of a household name and he's taught. He, he crops up on courses. Really? I think particularly in the States. I know people who teach him. I know people who teach The White Tiger. But I, I imagine if you ask the average reader of, of fiction who sort of you know knows a bit but doesn't know that much they're, they're unlikely to have heard of him and it is peculiar because it's not like he was a one hit wonder he's he's no. written other good books Between Assassinations is a good book yeah uh, overrated well this is fun isn't it yeah um, <laughs> how many can I have <laughs> I mean to you, be honest, have, I've got, you can I've have got, up to I've, up to three I've got to go for the Finkler question which I just hate 
Um, and I and I and I, I have mixed views on Howard Jacobs, and I actually think his earlier fiction is excellent. The I, comic fiction. The comic fiction. I mean, the fiction question is supposedly comic. It's just not funny. Uh, the Kaluki Knights is a great book. Is I, it? I, I, I will I will happily stand up in court and defend Kaluki Knights, but I just think the Finkler question is silly and cannot be worse than the one about threesomes. Possibly. There's also Zoo Time, his book about mother-in-laws, which is awful. But anyway, and Jay. Oh my God, that, and that was that was shortlisted. Jay was shortlisted for the book. So is he now part of the establishment? I mean, he's, he's yeah, exactly. He's, so he, he's, he's, he's in a lecture that we've published. Oh, yeah. he's a very fine writer and you know he is it, absolutely but yeah, I think he's one of those writers who wrote brilliant books until he got shortlisted and, and, and in fact won the book and then everything he's written since has been awful and has sort of found its way <laughs> onto prize lists it's sort of the it, it shows he's how now he's now part of the gang yeah. um, and I'm also slightly um, sort of impishly going to say Midnight's Children oh which wins every time which they do a booker of booker of booker of bookers Twice it's won the 25th anniversary. It is, and, and that's and it's, it's the reason why they didn't do another Booker of Bookers this time around because it either would have had to go to Rushdie or not go to Rushdie. Yeah, and either either would have been. Be too bad. And yeah. was the Booker of Bookers, remind me, was that the former judges coming together or was that the public vote? I think it was a public vote after 25 two. years. He's what there'd been two. There was one after 40 years. No, the one that's now. There was one after 40 years and one previously after 25 years. And he won both of them. And what's the Golden Booker? That's the one for this year, the 50. And the, for each decade, there's been another judging panel to pick the winners and pick one from it. And they're now going into a public vote, which will be announced at this event that we're sending these papers to. And Midnight's Children did not win the decade category. It didn't. So, OK, that's good. Thea? I can't help but agree with slightly curmudgeonly Richard Flanagan's take that all of the winners are overrated. <laughs> oh, he says that, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. he does. I'm going to go for Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel on the grounds that I cannot believe it won the Booker having with Wolf Hall having won three years before. It baffles me that because I think it's fine. It's a good historical novel. Do you think Wolf Hall should have won? I think Wolf Hall is more striking to me because it was the first one and with it having won, I think it's a very good book, a very good piece of historical fiction. With it having won, I can't see what Bring Up the Bodies does differently to it that, such that it requires to win again. And think of the pressure when the, the third instalment Which comes is, out. Which is this year. Uh, on I that thought, note, sorry, I have thought of slightly better overrated actually. Go on. And I feel a bit bad for saying it, which is probably why I didn't. Eleanor Catton, the luminaries. Everyone's very excited because she was the youngest person to ever win the Booker, and it was for the longest book oh. as well. I think it was nearly yeah, nine hundred pages yeah, or something. Pages. And the problem was for me that it felt that long. And I just couldn't get on with it. We, we were a bit sceptical about it. Kate Webb said, It is an impressive novel, captivating, intense and full of surprises, though one that remains under its own spell, leaving the reader beguiled, but not in the know. Exactly. Well, there we, we, we were on the mark. There you go. <laughs> uh, it's interesting you mentioned that, because I was looking at this list. We've got the full list. The last five... Sell Out by Paul Beattie, Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James, The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan, The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel. Has there been a great book, genuinely great book the chosen? The Line of Beauty. So you're going for the... I Definitely. would say... Were you going to say since... since disgrace. Disgrace, yes. Disgrace, disgrace in 1999. I think yeah. disgrace, is, is, disgrace is, by any standards of any period in history, you would yes. say disgrace yes, stands up as is. a great novel. Absolutely. I, I, I think Thea and I would both make the case of The Line of Beauty. I think yeah. it is a great and enduring novel. I think you can make the case of Wolf Hall. It is not a case I would like to make and intend to make, but I think people, Michael, people can... Michael, Dr Keynes did indeed make that case. Absolutely, and he made it very well. Um, and I'd possibly argue with Michael about that, but I'd be very happy for him to make that case. You know? But the virtue is, and we should probably leave it there, that we are talking, go back to that pre-Goncourt thing that Gabby Wood talks about, 
unfailingly stimulated the reading of and conversation about new fiction. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, even from this, I might go and read a couple of books that we've just talked about. And if we're not going to go mad like Julian Barnes suggests, we can't take it any more seriously than that. It's just nice to talk about books. I agree. You know, it gets it, it, it's the start of a conversation, not the end. Do you know who's going to who would any tips? Uh, early tips, yeah. <laughs> I think, and I'm clearly going to be wrong because people are always wrong when they predict things. But I think the Richard Powers novel, The Overstory, is very, very likely to do well. And really? I wouldn't be. I think it's from not that I've read every, you know, all 170 books that have been submitted, or even a fraction of them. But it, it seems to me the most serious and hefty and exciting book probably i also I, I absolutely love the new sally rooney novel normal people very different sort of novel much much more uh, likes it as well. it's, it's brilliant it is just brilliant and brilliantly written very very different powers is much more sweeping in scope they both do different things very very I well like the jasmine ward yeah it's great I'd, I'd, I'd be delighted to see that on the short she's american so that it'll, it'll... in fact i'm actually very excited by this year um i really hope that it's a good long list because I, I can think of God if it was down to me I can think of you know get ten books that really deserve to be on that long list. Just on the Toby list. <laughs> and the long list well, is usually July. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's ready yet. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it needs a bit of finessing. Um, the long list I think late July usually and short list early September something like that. Watch this space, Toby Listig. Thank you very much indeed. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey. 
Here's Something for Liberals to Celebrate begins this week's lead review essay by Joan C. Williams. Amid the sustained transatlantic moan of Brexit and Trump, we are experiencing a new focus on social class. While the past 50 or so years have seen a great deal of attention paid to race and gender, the study of social class has been largely limited to an ever-shrinking group of Labour scholars. But no longer, and let's be clear, race and gender won't stay out of this discussion long. Recent events, though, have brought class crashing to the fore. In this country, we all remember those post-referendum maps showing a clear correlation between the Leave vote and those regions with a tradition of manufacturing employment and, latterly, unemployment, relatively low pay and few or no university qualifications. A very similar map shows the vote breakdown for the most recent US presidential election in which, as William points out, fewer than 500 US counties voted for Hillary Clinton – but those account for two-thirds of GDP. The more than 2,600 that went for Donald Trump account for that other third. Joan Williams, the author of last year's White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America, has reviewed Justin Jest's The White Working Class, What Everyone Needs to Know, and George Hawley's Making Sense of the Alt-Right, just two books in a glut of recent attempts to grapple with class divisions in the US and the UK. Joan joins us on the line from San Francisco to tell us more. There's, there's an awful lot to get through here, so I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if we... Understatement there. Um, I wonder if we might begin with Justin Jest's book, because it, it suggests itself as a sort of primer, but also because Jest explicitly sets out to compare how class is shaping politics in the US and the UK. Mm -hmm. So... How similar really is the Trump voter to the Brexit voter? Um, I think they're really quite similar, and Justin is on to something. I think that both the Trump voter and the Brexit voter um, were voting with their middle finger. They were extremely angry, and really for two reasons. The first is economic. Um, although GDP has done well in both countries, there are some areas of each country the north of England and the Midwest in the U.S. that have been left behind. And one of the reasons that they have had um, so many hard decades is because of the <clears throat> shift of manufacturing abroad. And neither country has been very um, concerned uh, about the economic fate of, the, of people in these regions left behind. I think in Britain of the movie The Full Monty, which was a long time ago, which is about blue-collar guys. And it was, it was a very funny comedy, but it was also really tragic. And um, that elites in both countries have not been particularly concerned with the f fates of these people. The, the second issue is that at exactly the same time that the economic fortunes of the middle class in both countries began to take a nosedive, the tradition in both countries of honor for um, blue-collar, the work of blue-collar men, really um, <clears throat> also uh, changed. And so in the United States, blue-collar men have been, for example, in situation comedies, consistently depicted as kind of racist, stupid, um, sexist and fat. That sort of gets to the heart of, of, of something there, because part of the problem is is a tendency, I think, probably to define the working class purely as, as uh, an economic thing. And you kind of look at economic deprivation, but what you're getting at here is it's the kind of, is the putting down of culture. 
that's the problem. Well, economic, yeah. I mean, class differences are expressed as cultural differences. This has been documented over and over again since the 1970s. And so one of the key ways that class differences are expressed is in terms of cultural conflicts, cultural conflicts over patriotism, over traditional versus um, sort of postmodern <clears throat> family values, um, the, the conflicts over sexual values, all of those are expressions of class conflict through culture clash. And yet the issue of race is an interesting one, isn't it? Because the, the cliché, and you can tell me if you think this is a fair one, uh, in both countries I think that not everyone who voted Trump was a racist, but every racist voted Trump. Not everyone who voted Brexit was racist, but every racist voted Brexit. How true is that as an argument? I'd never heard it, actually, but I think it's very apt. You know, there's a lot of there, racism is in this equation for sure, um, where you have white people uh, in diverse countries, it usually is. Um, but to, and it's certainly true, I think it's really important to distinguish between different kinds of Trump voters. Um, and there's a study that delineates five different kinds of Trump voters. And of course, a lot of them were just traditional. Um, conservative, uh, affluent Republicans who are voting their own second economic self-interest. And with Trump's tax cut, they seem smart to have done so. Uh, but there's two groups of less affluent voters that cut sharply for, for Trump. For one of them, nativism and racism is really at the center of their concerns. For the others, though, that may be a concern, but the central concern is economics. And there are about 12 million people in the United States who voted for Trump who also voted for Obama. So I think simply writing off what's going on as mere racism, I think actually just fuels racism. There's another binary which I think interesting which is true in Britain it's true in France I'm sure it's true in America which is this divide between the city and the country where yeah. if you live in a provincial town you have been forgotten British provincial towns used to be manufacturing hubs that no longer are so they are slowly being hollowed out and dwindling while the capital powers on in America I'm sure that's true in the big cities or some big cities like New York compared to uh, the Rust Belt do you think there's a split there that Trump voters and Brexit voters, they come from a part of the country which uh, is very different to the urbane world of the city. In the U.S., a lot of it focuses actually around gun control. Gun control is one of the key expressions by rural voters that they are um, not respected and not uh, their concerns are not included by the coastal elites. You make um, a point you... you you talk about the logic of working class life. Is is there a sense that, I mean, do you think that working class, the logic of working class life is irreconcilable with the logic of middle class life? I think that there's a class culture gap and that too often people in the elite just see the, their own um, peculiar folkways which, by the way, of course, are my folkways, <laughs> they see them as just absolute truth and the folkways of less affluent people as either ignorance, expression of lack of education, or just um, stupid and wrong. And here, you, um, the logic of the elite is focused around self-development. 
and so that's why we raise our kids with all kinds of enrichment activities. We establish broad, shallow social networks, and we do networking in order to establish them because that's what's helpful in our jobs. And we tend to value novelty because that's a way of displaying our taste, which is a way of displaying our human and social capital. But, but working class communities value community more than individual, is that what you're saying? Well, the, the elites actually value individualism and individual achievement more than community. Um, and in the working class, the value is placed more highly on community. Um, they don't have broad social networks. They have small, dense social networks of people who know each other. That's the way they get not only jobs, but child care, elder care, the roof fixed. And so they're very, very rooted, whereas elites pride themselves on merit. Um, working class people pride themselves on on morality. And that's that's part of what fuels that culture clash between traditional morality and the sort of edgy um, spiritualities and sexualities that are the preferred uh, milieu of the elite. That really brings us to George Hawley's book on the alt-right, because that's a different proposition. It's mostly graduates. They went to university, they got the education, and they are frustrated, dissatisfied, jobless, and that has been channeled into into the alt-right movement. Yes. Now, I, I think um, it's important to recognise it's really hard to get good data on the alt-right because they're such a shadowy online movement. Um, but the best impression I could find is that they are college graduates. And what's happened in the United States, and um, I think it also in the UK, is that the professional managerial elite is one of the only classes that kind of eats its young. And in the United States, many professional kids or many college grads find themselves unemployed or underemployed. They can't buy housing because housing prices have gone through the, the roof in what they consider to be desirable areas of uh, to live, like San Francisco and Brooklyn. And so they're in this state of kind of suspended animation, never quite being able to launch into adulthood. And partly, I think, because there's been so much discussion about race and so little about social class, some of them have interpreted their economic woes um, through the lens of race and said, the reason that I haven't been able to properly launch is because white people never get a break anymore. And the gender point's the same, though, isn't it? Because if you're a white man, you grow up with the expectation that you will be, you'll have the whip hand over the culture. And any form of equalising of that, any form of return to equality, not even return to establishments of equality, feels like a loss. And so uh, if you're a white man, not only when you see the greater involvement of black people in public life, you feel it's been taken away from you, you feel that at the gender level as well, potentially. I think that's certainly true. People compare themselves to their baselines. And if you look at the economic fortunes of blue-collar men, they have sharply decreased. And if they have no language of class, they're likely to attribute that to race. The other point that is yeah, that is shown by some studies is that if you're a white man and you don't make it, 
then people think you're really a loser, and you're likely to think you're really a loser yourself. Whereas if you're a person of color of modest means, you sometimes don't judge yourself as harshly because the role of racism is so clear. So for all of these reasons, all of this fuels the anger of um, of men who wish they had the kind of solid blue-collar jobs um, that they're fathers and grandfathers did. Both of these books um, here, and in general, much of the writing on this, it tends to focus on men. There is a statistic that you mention, which I think we need to talk about briefly, where um, you say white women without college degrees voted for Trump by a 28-point margin. How should we unpack that? The level of sex segregation among women who are not professionals has not diminished um, that much. And so these women generally have pink-collar jobs, like being a server or being a nurse, nurse's aide. And those kinds of jobs, it's really hard to sustain a family on those kinds of jobs without access to your boyfriend's blue-collar job. I voted for my boyfriend, said one white woman, Trump voter. And the other thing is I think Hillary Clinton in the United States really failed to connect with these women because she talked about the glass ceiling, which is basically saying that elite women should get the same jobs as elite men. Obviously, that doesn't appeal to working class people. So you have these two very different groups, um, these frustrated college grads who have failed to launch and looking around for someone to blame and um, blue-collar people, men as well as women, women who uh, have really, are really hurting economically and are looking around for someone to blame. And unfortunately, um, when that happens, you're going to have just hydraulic economic anger. Um, some or much of it expressed as racism. I think trying to unpick the various axes on which these things happen is fascinating. So it's, it's, it's not a profitable conversation since we haven't come up with any solutions, but it's worthwhile nonetheless. I think that the solution is that if you look, I mean, ec- sophisticated economic studies are coming out that show that um, in the shift to globalization, this is a study by Lackner, the, one of the key groups that has really lost is the middle class in um, rich countries. And I think what we're seeing is that is not a viable long-term solution. It's not a viable long-term solution in a democracy. And it's not a viable long-term solution for the business elite either, because we're beginning to see the corrosion of the kinds of social peace that are a prerequisite to to healthy markets and democracies. So the, the prescription is simple. The middle class needs to be middle class. If not, all hell's breaking loose. Joan Williams, thank you very much. How interesting that is. I think the middle class in America is, feels slightly different also. In that when I think Joan talks about the middle class there, that's the blue-collar classes in America yeah. very often. It's, it, it would be somewhere between working class and middle class in this country. Yeah. But it's this notion that, that people feeling left behind, yeah. being left behind, will create a political consequence, well, whatever and the, that might be. And the difference between Trump voters and Brexit voters, I mean, obviously they overlap in many in many ways, but on, on Justin Jest's um, 
analysis, he breaks it down as economic deprivation, political deprivation and social deprivation. And what's interesting is that in the US, it was economic deprivation that was that was motivating people to vote for Trump. Uh, in the UK, it was political deprivation. Sovereignty. Sovereignty that was pre- making people vote for, for UKIP and then, and then Brexit. And it's just, you can trace a direct line through the different historical legacies of those two countries. You know, Britain and empire used to have complete sovereignty over its own laws and blah, 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 and then it lost it to Europe and immigrants versus the US where it's just, they've lost their dream. It's, the American dream. They've lost their dream. Anyone could be a millionaire and no, no more. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Cheery, <laughs> there it is. Our thanks go to Joan Williams and Toby Lishtig. Do buy a copy of the paper, which is full of lots of American gems. Next week, it's the summer book special of the TLS. We'll all be back to discuss what should be read on the beach this year. Extra points will be given for pretentiousness. And Until then, from Thea and me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.